100 of Americans who come across. Wildfire victims appeal for help. This fire just keeps on going. Why the province isn't prepared to declare a state of emergency yet. And human traffickers accused of preying on young girls. Investigators believe there may be more victims. The VPD investigation that led to charges against three suspects. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Sophie is away tonight. BC's tourism industry is buzzing with the Prime Minister revealing a timeline for reopening the border to fully vaccinated tourists before the summer is out. As Ted Chernecki reports, hard-hit airlines say an open border can't come soon enough. It's what the Canadian airlines industry has long been asking for, a date when restrictions will lift and hopefully it won't be too late. We are very close to losing the entirety of the summer season. We have not lost it completely, so we're, we're pleased to, to see the, the announcement. But now we need to actually see the operational details and the, and the dates for implementation. It may look busier at YVR, but this is nothing compared to the rest of the vaccinated world. Domestic air travel in the States is surpassing pre-COVID levels, while here it's at 27%. Yet the vaccination rate in Canada is higher than in the States. Many of those aircraft icons seen flying over Canada on PlaneFinder.net while they're just passing through our airspace. We have not had a clear, conveyed restart plan that consumers could then look at. This graph shows how in 2019, we were seeing 30 to 40,000 international arrivals a day in June. But for the last two years, it's been a mere trickle. It's a similar story for U.S. residents arriving in Canada in U.S. vehicles, each spike representing weekend travel in 2019, but not in the last two years. That could all change in a matter of weeks. Two doses of a World Health Organization approved vaccine is going to be required to enter uh, Canada. And I think that's the sort, type of assurance that we wanted to hear. And I look forward to working with them to open our borders uh, in August to the American citizens and uh, later in that month or early September uh, for international travelers. But how to ensure American and international arrivals really are double vaccinated, especially now that infections are rising again in most states? So you'll provide the federal government with a, a picture uh, of the proof of your vaccination and you will download that through the ArriveCan app. And then that'll be verified uh, at the border in the customs hall by uh, CBSA officers. For inexplicable reasons, Canada, unlike most other vaccinated countries that have given their airline and tourism industries a definite restart plan with specific dates, Ottawa has not. Even yesterday's announcement warranted nothing more than a mention at the end of some briefing notes with more details to come next week. Ted Chernecki, Global News. Let's check the latest information on COVID-19 in B.C. And we have crossed the 6 million threshold now for total doses. We have 45 new infections in the province. 652 of those are active cases. 60 people are in hospital, 12 of them in the ICU. We've had no deaths in the last 24 hours and just one in the past week. And of those 12 and older... We're just half a percent shy of 80% vaccinated with a first dose, and 49.5% of those 12-plus have received their second dose. Now, the vaccination rates don't tell the whole story, so for more, we'll bring in Keith Baldry to explain what we're really seeing in the numbers. Keith? 
Yeah, vaccination rates vary around the province. It's great that we hit 6 million mark, as you mentioned. We're almost 80% for first doses. But I can tell you it's a different picture between much of Vancouver Island, Metro Vancouver, and the rest of the province. Take a look at the sort of the success stories in terms of where we really have high rates. Whistler off the charts at 97.8%. Less than 300 people are remaining to be vaccinated there, by the way. Oak Bay and Sydney here on the island. Again, very high numbers. Gulf Islands, with the exception of Salt Spring for some reason, which is in the 70 percentile, they're over 90 percent as well. And Gordon Head over here in Victoria, a neighborhood there at almost 90 percent. But uh, a different coin on terms of the uh, low vaccination rates. This has been a problem for weeks now. It's largely the Peace River area, Chetwin, Dawson Creek, Fort St. John, Vanderhoof as well. So the north and the interior have the lowest vaccination rates. And again, Metro Vancouver and Vancouver Island doing very well. So we're trying to get health authorities, trying to get those first dose numbers up uh, in those regions. I'll leave you with some more news just breaking about COVID-19 in BC. The Delta variant of concern, which is the one of concern around the world, uh, which is more transmissible and spreading at a higher rate, has now gone on the report just released by the Center for Disease Control from 11% of all the cases just a couple weeks ago to now 37% of the cases. That's a threefold jump in the Delta variant. Also, it's the most prevalent variant in the Interior Health Authority at 55%. And coincidence or not, that's where COVID-19 has been located the most. Interior Health now is the most uh, COVID-19 cases on a daily basis for more than a week now. And no that the Delta variant of concern is the dominant variant in that region. Obviously, public health keeping a nervous eye on those numbers going forward. And why vaccination is so important. All right, Keith, thanks very much. Have a good weekend. Struggling businesses have a new challenge. It's increasingly difficult to find lower-paid workers. Many who usually hire students say those who qualified for government relief are still noticeably absent from the workforce. Jordan Armstrong reports. The desert heat of Osuyu sends a lot of people in search of ice cream. But finding people to serve that frozen treat hasn't been easy. The local Dairy Queen is moving to drive and walk through only because the owners say they don't have enough staff to run counter service. At the British Butcher in North Vancouver, there's no fat to trim when it comes to labor. I think the main thing is that the pool of available people to, to work at the, uh, at the lower income scale, is just become smaller. A decade ago, she had workers who would commute from Burnaby and Vancouver, but no more. It's impossible for them to get over the bridge, either one of them, and so we're limited to the North Shore. The North Shore is very different demographically, um, and we can put ads in and get nobody. She says government wage relief programs and workers switching industries during the pandemic have made things tougher. It's a similar struggle for the tourism and hospitality sector, with reports of entire hotel wings sitting empty, rooms unsold, because there's no one to clean them. Our government has actually repurposed many of our trained and skilled people into long-term care, the medical profession, and all the vaccination clinics in British Columbia are also right now being staffed by people from the hospitality sector. She says employee incentives like flexible hours, travel deals, maybe ski passes could help woo some workers back. But at the same time, the Hotel Association is looking to government for help with training and recruitment. We need people to come to work now and we need people to come to work uh, all over the province. Jordan Armstrong, Global News.
Some new evacuation orders are in effect tonight in the central Kootenai due to the Michaud Creek fire with an evacuation alert for the community of Edwood on the west shore of Lower Arrow Lake. The regional government there has declared a local state of emergency. Right now there are 308 fires burning in B.C. with 26 new fires in just the past couple of days and across the province there are 29 wildfires of note affecting communities or critical infrastructure or they're highly visible. One of those is the Brenda Creek Fire west of Kelowna. It held at 400 hectares but is still considered out of control. The good news is hydro crews assessed the fire Friday and they haven't seen any damage. New crews arrive from Mexico and Quebec over the next week. They'll be deployed to the interior and they will operate in a COVID-19 bubble apart from local crews for the time being. The town of 100 Mile House remains on evacuation alert tonight as two wildfires prompt evacuation orders for those who were in the path of the flames. But some stubbornly are refusing to leave. Paul Johnson joins us from 100 Mile with the latest. Paul. Well, Chris, 100-mile house and vicinity have mostly held their own today. None of the big fires in the area have made any major breakouts, and the number of properties under evacuation order is still holding steady at around 1,500. But this town still has a cluster of very dangerous fires nearby. With the only road into the south shore of Canham Lake closed because of the evacuation, we took a boat across the lake to get this up-close view. To set up all these sprinklers for these homes and stuff like that is a big task. They have to maintain the pumps and everything else. That, to me, has, has given me a sense of safety that I never had until that happened. From the water, you can hear the whine of dozens of water pumps that have been set up to soak these properties with lake water. The effort is admirable, but try to imagine if one of these was your home. This fire just keeps on going. It just, it, instead of, like, it was almost under control, then they left it alone, then it went right under control again. So and now it's reaching right across an entire mountain. It just keeps going and going and going. You can see, you know, across the mountain here, uh, it started up in this area and it's progressively going to, to the left and uh, it's, uh, it's growing it's, and that's the big concern. South of 100 Mile House, the fire burning near Flat Lake Provincial Park was of most concern Friday and appeared to be the priority target from the air. This was the fire that closed Highway 97 for most of Thursday sitting in the midst of a cluster of fires and in the area with the most evacuations in the province. The mayor of 100 Mile House says his citizens are better prepared for any outcome this year than in the evacuations of 2017. I've been working the roadblocks and I've had discussions with people and you know I'm, I'm hearing a lot of different things but the biggest thing is people getting the, the go bag ready. They're pre getting prepared, they're better prepared this time than they were last time. And so there also seems to be uh, just now an element of uh, political discontent has now been injected into this situation. We've been hearing from a lot of people who've been approaching us here in 100 Mile House saying that they want Victoria to declare a provincial state of emergency because of this fire. A lot of these people, of course, also remember what they went through four years ago in the fires of 2017. So far, though, Premier has been reluctant to do so, and he's been explaining his reasons why. Chris? 
no doubt. We have more on that right now, too. Thanks very much, Paul Johnson, reporting from Hunter Mile. Well, despite that growing chorus of calls for the B.C. government to declare a wildfire state of emergency, including from the Union of B.C. Indian Chiefs, Premier Horgan says it's not necessary yet. Horgan says the wildfire fight is already getting all the available resources and funding it needs. Richard Zussman reports. B.C. wildfires triggered a provincial state of emergency in 2003, again in 2017, and again in 2018. So why hasn't the province called one for 2021? I'm absolutely prepared to call a state of emergency when it is required by those professionals that are putting their lives on the line to protect families, property and British Columbia. And so far, those professionals aren't asking for the state of emergency, but many others are. The Thompson-Nicola Regional District Board of Directors voted unanimously Thursday to make the appeal to the province. And I'm hearing this across the board. When is the province going to take this seriously? And the state of emergency says that the province of British Columbia, the government of British Columbia, is taking what's happening to us here seriously. And there was a growing petition with more than 5,000 signatures asking for the province to call the state of emergency. This is what it would allow. Coordinating federal, provincial and local agencies, BC can commandeer any firefighting crew in the province and can request buildings like community centres to be used to house both evacuees and help fight fires. There is not one advantage at all from calling a state of emergency except to bring more people together. Isn't that exactly what people are asking for right now? That every single resource that is available be used to, to uh, deal with these uh, wildfires. States of emergency historically impact tourism, not just in the fire region, but in places across the province. But even so, the Premier insists stalling the call doesn't have to do with the hard-hit tourism sector. The tourism industry is not top of mind today. The fire season is. I also think that there's emergency, a state of emergency fatigue going on here after so many months of being under COVID. Emergency Management BC has weighed in, calling it primarily a legislative tool. Richard Zosman, Global News, Victoria. And coming up on the news hour, we'll hear from the mayor of Lytton facing a huge challenge to rebuild his village destroyed by fire. Some fascinating insight. Until then, VPD share the results of their two-year investigation into human trafficking. Three arrested and charged, including a young offender. How they preyed on underage girls and why there may be more victims next on the News Hour. A spectacular fly past from the Snowbirds today with a CF-18 in rare formation with them. The team's message to frontline healthcare workers coming up on the news hour. And the Blue Jays are coming home. The pandemic pivot that'll put them playing in front of Canadian fans later in sports. Right now, though, breaking news and delays for transit commuters right now in Surrey as RCMP respond to a stabbing near Surrey Central Station. RCMP have the area taped off, including University Drive and 102nd Avenue. We don't have a lot of detail right now, though police confirm a person was stabbed around 3.30 in the afternoon. An ambulance transported one man to hospital. Police say he survived the incident. No word on his condition. Transit police have closed the bus loop and rerouted some buses in the area. No word on how long the disruption will last, but we do have calls into the RCMP for more details when they're available. We'll pass them on.
Also, Surrey RCMP are investigating a series of anti-Muslim graffiti at several locations in central Newton. Since July 5th, there have been several incidents reported to police. It's believed all of them are linked to the same person or group. The most recent incident on Wednesday on a dumpster and pole near a mosque at 72nd Avenue in King George Boulevard. Police say this has left many in the community shaken and feeling unsafe. A volunteer group is now helping clean up the offensive graffiti. I honestly think, you know, the last thing we need is all this hatred and racism around the city. Um, so when we get these kind of uh, calls, we try to respond as fast as we can, you know, um, especially in an area like this. There's a grocery store here, um, a dentist's office there, animal hospital. This is a family-friendly area, and the last thing we really want is for, you know, people of the community to be seeing this sort of stuff. Anything that's um, regarding whether it's anti-Muslim or any other community in our city uh, is not tolerated. There is no room for anti-Muslim graffiti in our city. And our officers are working very diligently to identify the person who's doing this. Surrey RCMP are asking anyone with information to contact them or Crime Stoppers. It's been described as a heinous crime. A homeless man pepper sprayed and then run over last Saturday night in Nanaimo. The victim, we now know, is named Charles Salter. And as Kylie Stanton reports, his family is horrified by what happened to him. This is one of the only Christmases I really remember with him. The photos are dated. A reminder of a relationship strained. He had fallen into the cycle of drugs and ended up on the streets. It's been four years since Kayleen Salter has seen her father, Charles. His whereabouts unknown until he became the victim of a horrific assault in Nanaimo last Saturday. I can't believe this is how I found him. Like, <sighs> He's got like tire tracks all over his body. Like, the 45-year-old was pushing a shopping cart near Victoria Avenue and 102nd Street when witnesses say a small black car with several occupants approached. One of them got out, dousing him in pepper spray. Then the car accelerated, running Salter Rover. We're all shocked. Like, regardless of his choices, everybody's like, he did not deserve this to happen to him at all. Like, Salter has now launched a GoFundMe in hopes of traveling from Alberta to Vancouver Island to help her father recover. He's currently on a ventilator and has undergone surgery on his pelvis. She writes, his name is Charles Samuel Salter. And regardless of his actions that led him to homelessness, we still love him. I really need financial support from my community in order to come home and support him. It would just mean the world to me to be able to go home and, and be with him and show him that, you know, even though we haven't been together for four years, that me and my brother are behind him and the rest of the family's here, regardless of the choices he's made. As for the suspects, Nanaimo RCMP have not made any arrests. The case is now priority one with the general investigation section. Tips are coming in as well as CCTV footage. Officials say they're confident the investigation is moving in the right direction. I think he must have been 19 or 20 when this picture was taken. But more than anything, Salter's hoping this will be the wake-up call her father needs to finally turn his life around and be part of the family once again. It just means so much. Kylie Stanton, Global News. Vancouver police are calling for witnesses to come forward after two men and a young offender were arrested for the alleged human trafficking of underage local girls. 
Following a multi-year investigation, Vancouver police arrested two men, Elkan Vizagaro, who goes by the nicknames of Lavish and LK, and Miaz Nur Eldin, who's also known as Streets. A third person, a young offender, was also arrested. All three are now facing human trafficking charges. Police say their victims were teens, and they believe people in the community will have important information in this investigation. Investigators do believe that there could be more victims or people that have or know of this situation. So that's why we are now doing a, a public plea and um, asking the public to help. We do also believe that the recruiting was very general. It, it happened online. It happened in person. It, it pretty much could happen anywhere that you could think of. Anyone with information about this domestic case of human trafficking is asked to call VPD or Crime Stoppers. And Vancouver police have arrested a man after he appeared on a busy street carrying a gun and in body armor. The man was spotted on Main Street near 2nd Avenue this morning with what appeared to be an assault rifle. Police deployed a flashbang as a distraction and arrested the man. It was later determined he was carrying a non-lethal airsoft gun. Airsoft is a competitive team shooting sport. The man's facing a charge of public mischief. The incident prompting a Vancouver inspector to tweet, if you're waiting for your ride to the airsoft park, don't stand at a busy intersection wearing body armor, just saying. Sandra Glendinning, always putting things in context for us. Up ahead, modern archaeology to solve an historic mystery. In terms of timing, it could take a year. It could take 10 years. Experts provide some insight into the challenge to identify the remains in unmarked graves. And later, the feds pump millions into cleaning up the B.C. coast. But is it enough? We have some breaking news regarding the B.C. Civil Liberties Association. It's searching for a new executive director tonight. Harsha Walia announced her resignation from the organization. In a release late Friday afternoon, the BCCLA board said it accepted her departure with heavy hearts. Walia caused a stir at the end of June, tweeting, burn it all down to reports of church torchings in Canada. The tweet set off a firestorm on social media. As we learn more about the discovery of at least 200 unmarked graves at the former Kamloops residential school site, the huge scope of the investigation is starting to come into sharper focus. As Neetu Garcha reports, the ground-penetrating radar survey was just the first step in what will be an expensive, multi-year archaeological project of which every step will be subject to intense scrutiny and cause some intense emotions. And a warning, of course, this story may be triggering. These traditions of song and ceremony, which assimilation institutions like the former Kamloops Indian Residential School tried to erase, coming moments before to Kamloops Tishwetmik Chief Roseanne Kazmir called on Prime Minister Trudeau to turn over attendance records on Thursday. Those primary documents currently within the custody of the Canadian government will be of critical importance to identify those lost children. And we will continue to recommit uh, to sharing any and all uh, records uh, that the federal government has. The $27 million we set forward was an initial funding. There will be uh, more 
funding as necessary to continue uh, to allow communities to grieve, to heal, and to get answers. But there are differing opinions on how to get those answers, what methods to use, and whether to return the children's remains to their home communities. The Kalmistus Schwetmik has a responsibility and the obligation to identify the unmarked graves found within our jurisdiction. What I would like to see is the burial site to be left undisturbed. Yes, they may have to be some studies to be done. What, what good are those studies going to do for us, for an individual, for me? A Vancouver-based forensic identification expert not involved in the Tecumloops investigation says a key first step is deciding whether the process goes beyond identifying the remains of the children into how they died and ensuring there's accountability. In Bosnia, we would have a crime technician with us. The prosecutor's office was at the gravesite every day. She says a data management system would also need to be in place for all of the information gathered scientifically and from families to be safely stored. You need to map where the families are, um, who wants to be involved. You need to have psychosocial support for those families so that they understand what they can expect from the process. In terms of timing, it could take a year. It could take 10 years. And some remains may not ever be identified. Other Indigenous communities across Canada have used the same technology to search sites, revealing more than 1,000 unmarked graves, and there are believed to be thousands more, leaving survivors like Elder Evelyn Camille wondering, Now what next is what I want to know. And who will commit to bringing their long-told truths to light, as well as peace to the families of missing children. Nitu Garcha, Global News. Well, there's no doubt this news can be very difficult to process and traumatizing for some people, and help is available 24-7 through the National Residential School Survivor Hotline. The number is 1-866-925-4419. Coming up, his community was wiped out by a wildfire, but the mayor of Lytton is still showing leadership. It, it, it really makes me feel good that people have that type of generosity. Just ahead, how long he says it will take to rebuild and what his priorities are. Police incidents in Surrey has closed a lot of routes around 102 Avenue and University Drive, what we're looking at right now. So the bus loop in front of SFU is inaccessible at the moment and a lot of other streets as well. From home to car insurance, BCAA's local experts are here for all your insurance needs. Visit BCAA.com. In Global One, I'm Tim Main. His town is in ruins and the residents are scattered, but the mayor of Lytton says he's optimistic about the community's future and proud of how they've responded to the tragedy. Jan Polderman talked with our Aaron MacArthur about where his residents are now and the ambitious plans to rebuild Lytton as a cutting-edge, net-zero community. I'm hoping that we can get the, the town rebuilt in two years. Hard to imagine turning this into a community again but the work is underway job one making sure the evacuees spread over half the province have their immediate needs taken care of then comes temporary housing residents whose houses are, are no more 
we are um, they'll be in hotels until such time as we get our temporary housing in place. Residents and business owners have a long list of questions. And right now, there are few answers from any level of government. At the municipal level, a big part of the problem is infrastructure. The village office burned to the ground. The two servers that stored everything are gone. The mayor and council are working out of an office in Kamloops for the time being. With limited staff, it took almost a week just to get the village website functional again. I'm frustrated as well at not getting information and being able to pass it on. But as soon as we get the information we, and we verify that it's accurate, we are going to put it out on our website. Jan Polderman has met with the Premier and the Prime Minister, and there are firm commitments to rebuild better with inclusion from the Lytton First Nation. The company that helped Fort McMurray rebuild after its fires will be on site here too, once it's safe to work. What I hope is that it brings the town and the First Nations community together to create a brighter future. In addition to the physical losses, the fire has exacted a heavy toll on everyone, mentally, the mayor included. Polderman has dealt with criticism about his handling of the crisis, much of it unfounded. You know, all our people are trying to do their best. Um, you know, we're very limited. Um, e even the agencies that we're working with don't know the answers. Um, and then to be criticized, it was very difficult. There is still an enormous amount of work that needs to be done, even to allow people back into the village to sift through the ashes of their properties. Residents are being asked to be patient. This process will take time. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. And of course, our recent heat wave put that town really on the international map. And the BC Coroner Service is releasing updated numbers about the sudden deaths during the record-breaking heat wave. The coroner says 808 people died between June 25th and July 1st during the height of the heat dome over B.C. By comparison, only 232 people died in the same period last year. The deadliest day was Tuesday the 29th when 300 people lost their lives. Only 43 perished on the same day the year before. The coroner service adds... Further investigations are ongoing to determine just how many are actually heat-related deaths, but those numbers do not look good. Up ahead, a roaring tribute to health care workers. The Snowbirds have the whole lower mainland as their audience with this amazing fly pass. More... More federal funding is being dedicated to help remove abandoned boats from B.C. waters. English Bay served as the backdrop for the federal transport minister's announcement of more than a million dollars in funding. Two companies will be tasked with the removal and disposal of more than two dozen boats in Bella Bella and the west coast of Vancouver Island. Several indigenous communities are involved in the coastal cleanup, which will take a First Nations first approach. And a lot of people say... It can't get done soon enough. All right. The prospect of showers in the forecast, <laughs> it seems like it's been a long time since we've seen them.
30 days since we've reported any precipitation, and we'll take anything that we can get. So we've had a cooler day today, and we have the potential for showers creeping in late this evening, overnight, and even in towards the morning hours. Here's a quick glance at what it looks like. We've got some ominous-looking clouds over English Bay. We're sitting at 19. We bumped up to 20 today, and the average for this time of the year sits closer to 22. We've had a low that's just been offshore, and that's been bringing us the instability. We've had some active weather even across the central interior. Quick update, though, the severe thunderstorm warning has been dropped across the uh, caribou region but we're still seeing a line of thunderstorms and a big concern will be the lightning that's ripping through or working its way through that region there the potential though we have been tracking some wet weather we could still see some gusty winds for the showers, and then it is going to pick up once again especially along the central interior when we look ahead towards tomorrow here's the band of moisture though along the south coast and we're hoping to see some shower activity in towards the morning hours and then it clears out quite quickly though for metro vancouver and the active weather will be across the central interior through the afternoon hours tomorrow. Quick update on the Smoky Skies Bulletin still blanketing across the province. Those with respiratory issues, try and stay indoors if possible. Now, the northern half of the province, it's inland that will see that instability with the risk of thunderstorms. Showers for areas near the peace and then most of the central interior tomorrow. Repeat, similar to what we're seeing today with that risk of thunderstorms. Dry lightning will be a concern with the hot and dry conditions that we've been seeing. And areas towards the south of it still seeing the heat will be into the low 30s. Along the south coast, all areas could see a bit of shower sprinkles as we get in towards the morning hours and then the latter half of the weekend though it's going to be a warm one high still up to 26 away from the water all right tonight's weather window this is a shot that was captured before and after the smoke on burton on arrow lake and this one taken by chad chris oh that's tough to see fishing yeah yeah i mean it's nice to get out but when it's that hazy it's tough all right thanks very much yvonne hope the hopefully the fishing was good a lot of noise and quite the message delivered in the skies above Metro Vancouver this afternoon. The world-famous snowbirds flying over the region in formation as part of Operation Inspiration. They were joined, as you probably noticed, by a CF-18 in a rare guest appearance. That formation flew past the region's hospitals, saying thanks to frontline healthcare workers for their efforts during the pandemic. Now, of course, the tour was interrupted last year when a snowbird crashed in Kamloops, killing Captain Jennifer Casey and injuring the pilot and a lot of people. We're happy to see them back in the air over the Lower Mainland today, and we wish them the very best. All right, uh, Squire joins us now with a look ahead to sports. So up in Kamloops, the BC Lions are getting ready for the season, which will start in August. No exhibition games, of course, and new players like Tyvis Powell must have good practices to make the Lions. If you come in and you just label practice as, oh, it's just another practice, you know, this this opportunity to pass you by. We'll talk about what rookies and new recruits have to do to impress the coaches. Also tonight, let's not forget satellite debris. Tastes like bubblegum. Hey! It tastes like tutti frutti. Alex Edler has been connected to BC Hockey for a long time. Is that ending? Here's Squire. It looks like that. Yeah, people forget he played for the... Well, people in Kelowna don't forget, but a lot of hockey fans forget he played for the Kelowna Rockets for a while. Okay, in 2019, the Vancouver Canucks asked Alex Edler if he wanted to be moved to a contender at the trade deadline. He said no, wanted to stay in Vancouver. 
His agent said today on Czech TV he wants to test the free agent market, probably in hopes a contender comes calling. Now that doesn't mean he might not resign with Vancouver if nobody makes an offer, but the likelihood is after 1,007 games with the Canucks, regular season and playoffs combined, Edler is done with Vancouver. Now there's no doubt Edler is one of the best defensemen the Canucks have ever had. But his foot speed is not what it used to be. And that's a problem if he plays a lot of minutes, which he does. And there has to be a point where the Canucks move on from Alex Edler. As much as management would like him back at a reduced price tag, Edler will not be around when the Canucks get good again. So why not go younger and let him get a shot at the Stanley Cup with someone else? Well, there aren't many athletes who love practice, but rookies like Tyvis Powell, the man next to me, knows that Having good practices is the way to make the BC Lions this year because that's the only way you can impress the coaches. There are no exhibition games to do that. Cypress Powell, Cleveland, Ohio. Training camp is always an anxious time for rookies. For many, it's their first pro camp. For others, it's their first shot at the CFL, which is a much different game than four-down football. This year, because of COVID, there are no preseason games, so rookies have to make their mark in practice. you got to look at practice like it's a game. So I take every period and approach it as if I'm playing in the game. That way I got that mentality, like I got to go hard, like I got to show out and I got to show up. Powell is not your average CFL rookie. He played big time college football at Ohio State, where he was named top defensive player in the 2015 National Championship game, which the Buckeyes won. And he's bounced around the NFL with eight different teams, including the Seahawks, and has played in 18 NFL regular season games. But he takes nothing for granted in his first CFL camp. You know, for me, it's about coming in every day and showing why I deserve to be that guy. You know, you got to come in there and I earn it every day. And there are players like quarterback Nathan Rourke, the Lions' second-round pick in last year's draft, born in Victoria but raised in Toronto, and a successful quarterback at Ohio University. Rourke wants to make a great impression in his first camp, but also realizes he's just starting his journey as a pro quarterback. I felt like I've done a, a good job with the, the reps that I've been giving. I've been given. Uh, there's a lot for me to learn still. I'm glad that it's only uh, we've only had four practices, uh, and there's still a good chunk of, of camp to go. The Lions coaches also have to figure out if what they're seeing in practice will translate into a game, because finding athletic, affordable talent can be a difference maker in the CFL. Every year, there's going to be for sure at least two, three, four guys. Um, that can have an impact on a season. Um, and so we got to make sure we, we find those guys. Of course, it doesn't hurt to make a dazzling play to impress the coaches. So Powell has a request. I would like to have an interception. You know, if, if, any, if any of my fellow quarterbacks is watching, you know, just go ahead, just, just throw it out there. See what I can do. Just throw it out there and try me one time so I can show something. <laughs> That's good. Okay, the uh, Whitecaps play the LA Galaxy tomorrow night. Game will be on AM 7:30, starting with the pregame show at six o'clock. Another chance for the Whitecaps to end this never-ending nightmare of not being able to win a game. They've gone eight straight without a victory, and when your winless streak is that long, it's obvious a lot of areas need improvement. The biggest one for the Whitecaps, as far as the coach is concerned, is stopping goals. The thing is that. We have to do a better job collectively, defensively, um, because we shouldn't need 
three goals or four goals to win games or get get results, you know. So uh, that's an area that we have to to improve in. All right, look at that, the British Open. Usually they're playing, it looks like they're playing in a car wash usually, but it's magnificent over in Kent, England. And Corey Connors making an eagle putt at 14. Minus four, tied for 17th. Another Canadian, Mackenzie Hughes. Birdie putt at 14. He's at minus five, tied for 12th. How about Dustin Johnson in the wispy grass of the grass? But he gets out of it. I don't know why that was, but it came out. And puts that one close enough to kick it in for a birdie. He's at seven under par, which is tied for fourth. The first round leader is still the leader, Louis Oosthuizen. This is Eagle Country on number 14. 11 under par, two shot lead on Colin Morikawa. Jordan Spieth is three back. Adam Hadwin did not make the cut. The Blue Jays will soon be Toronto again. They are allowed to return to Rogers Center for home games Starting on July 30th against Kansas City, maximum amount of fans allowed at the start, 15,000. It's being called a national interest exemption from the federal government. Since COVID started, the Jays migrated, migrated south to play home games in Dunedin, Florida, and Buffalo, New York. That's where they are tonight, contact. taking on Texas. And the there's Vladimir Guerrero Jr., all-star MVP, doing what he does best, depositing baseballs over walls. That's the 29th homer of the year. And this is the 30th home run of the season for Guerrero. And it's 10-0 Blue Jays in the eighth. There you go. Who was the All-Star Game MVP again? Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Satellite Debris next. I don't know who's ready for a beer or some other refreshment at the end of the week here, but uh, this one will tempt your taste buds. I grew up near a Scottish family when I was a kid in Burnaby, and they always spoke lovingly about Iron Brew. This is one of their commercials. Mm. Tastes like bubblegum. Hey! Tastes like tutti frutti. Bubble oh. Tutti frutti. Sherbert. Lemon. Uh, it's tingly. No, bath bombs. Green orangey. It's ginger. Rhubarb. Sherbert. Partners, let's just agree it tastes magic. Melon! All right, uh, two from Geico now. A recent one featuring Yogi Bear and Boo Boo, and an older one. I love the the second one. I'm going to show you. I'll just let him roll. You'll, you'll see. We are thrilled. We finally found our dream home in the mountains. The views are great. The air is fresh. It is bear country, though. Hey, boo-boo! We hit the jackpot! Bear, 
bear, bear. Look, one on a cob. Ooh, chickens. Don't mind if I do. You're hungry. T-bone. Boom. That's what I call a smorgasbord. At least Geico makes bundling our home and car insurance easy. They do save us a ton of money. Well, take the cobbler to go. Good idea, Yogi. Now I'm smarter than the average bear. They're gone, Dad. For bundling made easy, go to Geico.com. Don't thank me. Thank the savings. You can't skip this Geico ad because it's already over. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on car insurance. All right, this last one from Heineken, you'll find out at the end what they really are promoting. Here we go. All right. Message. Hope your weekend goes that way. Thanks for watching, everybody.